Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When does a new situation, good or bad, become real for you? Imagine a foster child adopted by the family they long to join, for whom their new parents are finally mommy and daddy. Executive Director of Family Transformation Jimmy Kim continues the series God With Us with this sermon entitled The Reality of the Incarnation, which covers Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes and that, God, you would... um, Uh, soften our hearts and unclog our ears that we may see, receive, and hear these words of yours. We thank you that they are life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, I think for any good preacher, they they often will tell you right at the front, what is the main idea of this message? I'm going to hit on this hard. I'm going to hit on it often, and it is this. This first advent of Jesus Christ that we are celebrating now, right? This first advent of Jesus Christ, it ushers those of us who believe in him to gain the privilege of becoming what? Becoming children of God. If you can even boil it down to just three words, it is this, children of God. In our passage, we'll see over and over and over again that we receive this adoption as sons, of this living God, and that's what we're focusing on. Before we get into the passage, let me ask you a quick question. Do you recall the very last time maybe you eagerly expected or awaited something, right? For our children, this is, you know, this is on the forefront, right? Christmas Day is coming. Presents are coming. Maybe for you, you don't even have to look forward to Christmas Day. Maybe you skipped breakfast this morning, and you are eagerly expecting food, Maybe you haven't had your cup of coffee yet and you are expecting that cup of coffee. Perhaps for you, it's the fulfillment of days, weeks, months, years maybe even of laboring, the birth of a child, graduation from school, promotion at your job. You eagerly anticipate and you await that. I believe collectively as a city of Atlanta, we experience joyous fulfillment of eager expectation in early November. You may recall the call on the television, the O2, left side, Swanson, to first, the Braves, world champions. I don't know about you, but I was waiting with bated breath for that last out because there was still that little bit of sense of doubt in me. And I didn't grow up in Atlanta. I adopted the Braves as my home team when I moved here 20 years ago. And I was waiting, eagerly expecting that moment. Our moment had come, the time had come, the Braves had won the World Series, and the city celebrated. In our passage today, while it may not at first glance give you the same kind of goosebumps, I challenge us to take a closer look, because I believe we will find something of much greater value than this commissioner's trophy. So, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul, the apostle, writes this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. 
But when the fullness of time had come, here's the eager expectation. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, an heir through God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I emphasize verse four, and I'll read it again. But when the fullness of time had come, eager expectation for the fulfillment of time, for God to do something, it was off on the horizon and has come closer and closer and closer. The point that Paul is making here is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by his incarnation, by becoming flesh, by becoming God with us, we just sang about that, Emmanuel, God sent forth his Son, and he ushers us into this new reality. He ushers us into the family of God. And so what privileges then are afforded to us by this incarnation, by Jesus becoming flesh. What privileges do we gain? We're adopted into his family in three observations. A newfound identity, a greater intimacy, and a purposeful eternity. So let's look at that first observation. A newfound identity. The adoption of us as sons by God, because God came in flesh, namely in Jesus' form, This incarnation, it changes our status, our standing with God. In other words, our identity is made brand new. Verse 5, it says at the tail end, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. In other words, so that we might be brought into the family of God. This means that until Christ came, humanity could not know what it meant to be accepted by God. A few verses earlier in Galatians 3, Paul says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith that would be revealed. So in verse 1, we see a child until he is grown is no better than a slave. And Paul gets right to it in Galatians 3, we were held captive by the old ways until Christ would come. It comes back then to this linchpin verse in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, when the time was ready. Jesus often talked about this, as as John notes in the Gospel of John. He would often say, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then when he goes to the cross, what does he say? My hour has come. Because Jesus in his presence and in his death and his resurrection, we are ushered in to this family of God. Moving from slaves to fear, it means we undergo two key changes. The first one is this, a relational change, right? Slaves, they work, right? They work for their master. It is a results-based relationship, accepted on the basis of what the slave does. Whereas sons, children, it's a familial relationship, We are accepted on the basis simply of who we are and whose we are. So it's a relational change. Secondly, we see there's an identity change, right? We're no longer called slaves. We're called sons. 
Slaves are less than. Slaves are a result of some sort of brokenness, some sort of brokenness in a system, some sort of brokenness in, in existence. Whereas sons, children, we are being ushered in from brokenness into completion, into wholeness. The new reality that the incarnation affords us is that we get to be called sons of God. Now, I know at least half of this room is not sons. We have daughters here as well. What does Paul say about this? Again, we just jump a few verses earlier in our text in Galatians 3. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is not just a, a male preference thing or a chauvinistic thing or a misogynistic thing. No, when Paul talks about us as being sons of God, men and women alike, sons and daughters alike, we can say that we are sons and we gain the access to this father. So let's not be so quick to forget this truth. We are adopted children of God. If you're under the age of 40, the name Stuart Smalley may not ring a bell. But if you are, and you're a fan of SNL as I was, and still am, you would probably remember that name Stuart Smalley. Who was Stuart? Stuart was a reoccurring character and a reoccurring sketch on Saturday Night Live in the early 90s, played by Al Franken. And he, his sketch was called Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. And if you know it, you can say it with me. He would look into a mirror and he would say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. In some ways, there is a desire in us to look in that mirror, and I'm calling us to, yes, in some ways do this, remind yourself whose you are. You were moved from slavery into sonship. You were moved from brokenness into completion. You were moved from being outside of the family to inside of the family with full privileges. But guess what? We don't have to just look in the mirror because God testifies on our behalf of this reality. This is good news because we will absolutely forget. God does this for us. He is our father. Jesus is our brother and the spirit is our intercessor. Don't miss this. This new identity, it is an incredible, mind-blowing, paradigm-shattering gift from God. We who were slaves, who were hopeless, we receive a glorified identity. We get to be called sons. This is good news. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes this. We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us as sinners, as he loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus, sounds ludicrous and wild. Yet that, and nothing less than that, is what our adoption means. So what does a life of freedom and riches in Christ look like? I believe it means that we accept this newfound identity if, by faith, by grace, we call Christ as our Lord. So we stop running back to the old way of life. We stop running back to the quote unquote easier thing. And instead we remind ourselves of this new reality day after day. 
what others might call preaching yourself the gospel, remembering this incarnation, remembering this first advent, not just during the Christmas season, but every day throughout the year for all eternity. We remind ourselves of this reality through the regular reading of word and through prayer. Have you forgotten his voice? Have you forgotten the sweetness it is to commune with this God who calls us children? Perhaps because we have failed to be in the word. Perhaps because we have failed to see a sweetness in this communion through prayer. Perhaps because we've even failed to see the sweetness of gathering together as a body of brothers and sisters in the Lord. However challenging it might be, the duty is on us. But again, remember, God intercedes for us. Second observation of our adoption as children of God is that we receive a greater intimacy, a greater intimacy, not just a newfound identity, but also a greater intimacy. The incarnation of Christ changes our relational proximity with God. Verses four and six again of Galatians four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law, right? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The apostle John likely comments in a similar way in John 1, 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, what did Christ do? He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then also in 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. I don't think John and Paul are writing these things just to state fact to state theological truth. I think he is saying these things to to beckon us and to urge us closer into communion and intimacy and relationship with this God of the universe. You see, it would be preposterous for a slave to have this kind of intimacy with his master. Adoption in the Roman world was almost purely a matter of, of receiving inheritance and status. It almost feels cold. The Jewish reader, on the other hand, would have had a better understanding of what it meant to be brought into family through adoption. But the gospel is in this, the gospel is beautiful in this, that it is both for the Jew, who is a cultural insider, as well as for the Gentile, the cultural outsider. In other words, what I'm saying is this, in the doctrine of justification, because that's the work that Christ has done on the cross for us, right? That we are justified, that we are forgiven of our sins, Right? In the doctrine of justification, we see God as a merciful judge. And I love how Tim Keller writes in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Oftentimes, we stop and see Christ as God only as judge. And we try to run back into the courtroom, even though he's already declared us sinless. We stop at seeing God as judge. In the doctrine of adoption, however, we get to see God as father. Not only a judge, a merciful judge at that, but also a father. This is a great intimacy. This intimacy is marked by access to this father. 
in an incredible turn of events, we who were under a guardian, as it says in Galatians 3, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his, oh, and that's sorry, that's in verses 2 and 3 of Galatians 4. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does he mean by this? What he's saying is before Christ came, before this fullness of time, before this eager expectation, we were outside of the law of God. In fact, we had this law given to us and it was a burden on our shoulders because there was no way that we could accomplish the righteous requirements of the law. In Galatians 3, likewise, Paul says this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. I read that already. And what does it say? Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. A guardian restricts access. Jesus, the son, grants access. John 14, 6, Jesus says this himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. And what does it say? And no one comes to the Father except through me. A guardian restricts. Jesus, the Son, grants access. And what kind of access? An intimate access. How do we know this? It says the spirit that is within us cries, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, the very same words Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's pleading before God, his Father, for this cup to pass. In Mark 14, 6, we see that. Michael Reeves, in his book, Rejoicing with Christ, he writes this. In Christ, we get to share the very relationship with the Father that the Son himself has always enjoyed. The personal name he has for his Father, we are allowed to share We can come before the Almighty and say, or even stutter with a beloved son's own confidence, Abba. Without going too deeply into what we think Abba means or does not mean, what needs needs to be conveyed is this intimacy. There are certain words that you use and certain titles that you use for certain people And for some, in a relationship with my wife or with my children, I might have a pet name or a term of endearment for them. And no one else is allowed to use that term of endearment toward them, only me. When Jesus says, Abba, Father, and he tells us, Abba, Father, that is an incredible access. An incredible access to a greater intimacy. This greater intimacy, as I said earlier about our newfound identity, is an incredible, mind-blowing, paradigm-shattering gift from God. Access to the Father through the Spirit by the Son. This is the fullness of time. This was what we anticipated in the first advent. This is the reality of the incarnation. So what does a life that's proximate to God look like? Well, I mentioned some of those means before, through the word and through prayer. And without overcomplicating it, I beckon us, all of us, go and spend time with the Lord. Let your mind dwell on him. I believe a mark that is a relationship that is marked by intimacy looks like this. It looks like a lot 
of communication with our God? Are you communing with him? Are you talking to him? A part of my job before here at Perimeter was to constantly call all of our volunteers and our students and just see how they were doing. And one of my coaches would often say to me, Jimmy, are you suffering from call hesitancy? Those of you in the business world, back when you actually had to like call people, you, you recognize this, right? right? You, you know that your business is re- reliant upon your ability to pick up the phone and call people. I recognize this is a very foreign concept to young people. You don't call anyone. You just text them or you send them a message. You ping them. Beware of the hesitancy. Just do it. Just spend the time. It doesn't have to be a perfect manufactured time. Just go and do it. And here is grace. Though we fail and though we run away, God still remains father. He remains faithful. Though we refuse to dine at the table with him, he still sets out the meal. It's in plain sight and offered to you daily. Again, J.I. Packer in the book, Knowing God, says this, Christians may act the prodigal, but God will not cease to act as the prodigal's father. Let me read that again. Christians may act the prodigal, but God will not cease to act the prodigal's father. This is good news. In Luke 15, you can tell there's language here. Going back to Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Right, The younger son, when he ran away and he squandered his father's inheritance, he comes to his senses and he says, how many of my father's own servants, right? they don't worry about food, they don't worry about their, their clothing, they don't worry about where they're going to stay, they don't worry about their status, let me just go run back home. And he does so. But that's a temptation, isn't it? The younger son wants to relinquish his sonship simply to be a hired worker. This is movement sort of in the right direction, but not completely. To run to the father is to fully accept your sonship. Again, this applies to both sons and daughters. This is good news. Third observation, right? We have a newfound identity, a greater intimacy, And lastly, a purposeful eternity. This incarnation of Christ, it changes our perspective of our limited time here on earth. It should. It absolutely should. Otherwise, we will be living fatalistic lives. Look at verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, an heir through God. Luther, in his commentary to the Galatians, though not on this particular verse, says something similar. What tongue of man or angel can adequately extol the mercy of God toward us, miserable sinners, and that he adopted us for his own children and to be what? Fellow heirs with his son by the simple means of faith in Christ Jesus. We get to become an heir. We gain access to the father and we also gain access to this inheritance And it is not a kind of a side pot inheritance. No, it is the same inheritance due God, the son, Jesus Christ. We get to share in that same inheritance. And so we exuberantly and rightly so celebrate this first advent because he came in flesh, Emmanuel. But we also eagerly await this second advent 
We eagerly await for him to return again. We, we alluded to this in one of the songs that we just sang. When Christ ascended back into heaven, he didn't dematerialize. His flesh didn't go away. He remained fleshly in the sense that he was made of, 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 of body. And we await that return. We await that return. More on that in just a little bit. The adopted child of God, us, our perspective is now marked by hope and by purpose. In the song, O Holy Night, we see the line, a thrill of hope for a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. This is eager expectation. Do you live with that? Do you live with that kind of eager expectation? When you think about Advent, when you think about Christmas, and when you think about your time, your finite time here on earth, the life we live now must be lived in light of that which is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. That means any brokenness in your body, in your mind, in your soul, in your relationships, broken systems in this world, whatever it might be, God is going to make right. He will make it new. Remember that the temporal does not define the eternal. It's the other way around. The eternal indelibly shapes the temporal. Yet many of us, we allow the temporary things of our lives to shape our eternities. Let this not be true of us, church. Though this is a bit of a long quotation, the Westminster Confession of Faith on Adoption it's an excellent definition of what we are talking about today. But I want us to hone in on the very end of it. I'll read the whole thing, but I'll highlight the end. What is adoption? All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth, that is, graciously gives, in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God, to have his name put upon them, to receive the spirit of adoption, to have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We are pitied. We are protected, provided for, even chastened by him as a father. Yet we are never cast off. And here's what I want to highlight. We are sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of the everlasting salvation. If you've been around any children in the last five years, and I say children, that means like young children to like old children. If you decide to put yourself in that category, that's on you. Undoubtedly, you have heard this simple two-word phrase over and over and over again. Let's go. My own two children say this all the time. It's dinner time. Let's go. Hey, it's time to take a shower. Let's go. And it's not like a physical act of let's go. It's, it's, an, it's a proclamation of exuberance, right? The Braves won the World Series. Let's go. In fact, if you listen to that call from Joe Buck, you can hear at the very tail end multiple players on the Braves team saying with exuberance, let's go. You may not even get the full two-syllabic thing. I mean, you just hear let go. And, and that's, that's when you know you've achieved another level of hipness. 
When was the last time you had that kind of exuberance about anything? And to take it even further, when was the last time you had that kind of exuberance about the advent, about the reality of the incarnation? Let's go. My kids watch Dude Perfect too much. And that's when you constantly hear, whenever they make a trick shot, let's go. I hear it proclaimed in my cul-de-sac on the stairs when they're going down in the basement, wherever they are. Let's go. My son does this almost every time he gets off the bus. Dad, let's go. I don't know what that says about his perspective on school. (laughs) Having a purposeful outlook on eternity is an incredible, mind-blowing, paradigm-shattering gift from God. Humanity has once waited for this arrival of God in flesh. Jesus incarnate. We wait again for this time. And some of us, we wait in tears for we've lost loved ones. We experience great sorrow and we lament. No other system of belief offers us this kind of comfort in life for us to quietly say, let's go, come on. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This sounds a whole lot like God Emmanuel in Matthew and in Luke, does it not? And then verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Therefore, we say, let's go. We eagerly await this second advent. As I close, let me ask you another question. Who would you say are some of your earthly heroes? Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's a cultural icon or a political figure or a person who commands your respect and attention. For me, for most of my childhood, even into my adulthood, it's my brother. My brother is nine years my senior, so I jokingly often refer to him as my English-speaking father, whereas my father was my Korean-speaking father. One advantage of having a brother that's nine years older than you is that you gain this kind of immunity around the block because all I ever had to say was just wait until my brother gets here. If I was getting picked on, believe it or not, and I got picked on a lot, When I got picked on, I would just say, just wait till my brother gets here. Sometimes I wouldn't even have the ability to mouth those words, but I knew in my heart, my brother's going to come. That which is wrong, he will make right. All my sorrow, he will turn to joy. Revelation 22.20 says this, he who testifies to these things, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And we say, amen, come, Lord Jesus. This Christmas season, let's worship and eagerly expect and celebrate 
this great God, God in flesh. We celebrate his first advent and we eagerly anticipate his second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you. You are our hero. You are our Lord. And we need you to come for some of us more than others, but for all of us, yes, as your sons and daughters. We thank you that you have called us your very own and you give us this incredible access and you give us an incredible hope. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.